Well, I uh, have to say I really love preaching at this church. And <clears throat> when I uh, told Pastor Rob, I said, hey, I need to meet someone down in the L.A. area. You guys uh, let me know when, and I'll try and arrange. Uh, if you, let me know when you can use me next, and I'll try and arrange to come down then. And he goes, oh, how about this weekend? So here, <laughs> so here I am. So it's kind of fun. Uh, and I said on my text, I'm like, wow, okay, let me find out. <laughs> so as you know, I teach apologetics. My uh, ministry is No Blind Faith. And our subtitle is, uh, our motto is Theology, Apologetics, Relationship, Rational Faith. And that word apologetics comes from 1 Peter 3.15, which says, always be prepared to give an apologia to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, that word apologia does not mean to apologize, even though we get the word apologize from it. What it means in the Greek is defense or explanation. So always be willing to give a defense or explanation to everyone who asks for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, this is really important to your family, because in almost every case, when you send your kids off to college, they are going to run into professors, even sometimes in Christian universities, they're going to run into professors who think it's their job to separate them from your faith. And if you go send them to a secular college or a private university, a lot of times the professors have stated explicitly Am I on? There we go. To separate you from, separate them from your homophobic, superstitious faith. And you are paying their salaries. So as a result of this, you say, well, okay, we want to teach them something that will keep them in the faith. And the thing that keeps them in the faith is a strengthened philosophical, scientific, historical, archaeological, solid proof for their faith. And that's what apologetics is. But here's the deal. We can teach them apologetics every time your kids are in church, and you will find out that we only, as the church, we have only 17% influence on your kids. If you could send them, if you send them here every time the church doors are open for youth activity, we'd only have a 17% influence on the kids. So it's really not the youth pastors who can do anything about this. The media and their school and their peers have over 23% influence, 23 to 28%. There are only two people who have a stronger influence on your kids than the media and the church, and that's mom and dad. Mom and dad has a 53% influence on kids. And so I always put it this way, and I think I said this last time, if your kids had a disease that was 75% of the kids who had that disease would die, and 75% of kids who go to secular colleges leave the faith, would you just send your kid off to the hospital and say, okay, doctors, take care of him, I trust you? Or would you become an expert in that disease? Would you go on the internet and find out everything you have? Would you talk, go talk to specialists? Would you go to conferences and sit down with specialists and say, this, I need to find out what the cure is. I need to find out if what, when I send these people, these kids off, I, mean, I need to find out if they know what they're talking about. Well, your kids have a disease. When are you going to become an expert in the disease, an expert in the cure? So I always say you need to develop a culture of apologetics in your home. That means that you need, when you're driving... They ask a question, you say, you don't say just have faith, you go and look for the research yourself. They ask you a tough question, you don't just say have faith, you go find the answer to that tough question. And so today we're going to deal with some of those tough questions, Um, and I'm going to start with all the options. All the options means there's either no God or there's one or more gods. These are all the options. Now, last time I was here, I taught this, this is Who is Agent X, and I think we have like two more videos in the back and a couple of books. Uh, and, in that, and we talked about proving that it's more reasonable to think that God exists without using the Bible. Where I went through it, if you were here last time, we use science and logic and reason to prove that it makes more sense to believe God exists. And so we proved that there was, that the, no God was out and there was one or more gods. But now if we take a look at the one God, there's two options here, one God or many gods. Well, the reality is you can't have more than one all-powerful being. Right? You can't have two all-powerful beings because... One will be more powerful or what? So you can't have more than one all-powerful being, so there can only be one God, logically. And that eliminates a whole bunch of religions. It eliminates Hinduism. It eliminates uh, 
all the Roman gods. It eliminates all the Greek gods, right? It eliminates all the pantheistic religions and it eliminates all the, um, sorry, polytheistic religions and also eliminates Mormonism, which has many gods. So that leaves you with one God. Now, if you have one God, there are four options that we have with one God. Either the God of Islam is true or the God of Judaism is true or the God of Christianity is true or there's one other God that we don't know about. It's another religion where we haven't heard about. Now, I'm not going to look at Islam today or the unknown God, because those are, it's hard to prove an unknown right now. But I am going to look at the God of Christianity, which I believe is the God of Judaism. And to do that, we have to look at the writings that claim to be from him. And so today's talk is basically, can I trust the Bible? Where did it come from? How did it translate it so many times such that what we have today is completely different from what the original authors wrote? And I was talking to a very earnest young man one day, and I was explaining why I was a Christian. And during the conversation, he said this. He said, the problem I have with trusting the Bible is that it's a translation of a translation of a translation. It's so full of inaccuracies and contradictions that I just can't trust it. And this brings up a very important point. Is the Bible full of inaccuracies and contradictions? Has the Bible been translated so many times that what we read today is nowhere close to what the original authors wrote? And there are many other ideas, similar ideas about the Bible floating around. I was talking to an ultra-fanatic feminist who seemed to hate Christians, and she said, the words of Jesus Christ have been twisted right from the beginning. She said, I believe he was a good man. I believe he was a holy man. But they twisted what he said so much, and that the King James translators took what he said and twisted it to make him make it very male chauvinistic. I don't believe that God ever says he's a male. I don't believe God would do such a thing. That's something added by the King James translators. And then there's another group of people that said, well, I think the Bible was written hundreds of years after it claims to be written. It wasn't written around the time of Jesus. It was written in 200 AD. And there's another group of people that say that the Bible originally did not have Jesus as God. And Constantine took over the Bible, and in 300 AD, he rewrote the Bible to make Jesus God but it was never there originally. Now, in all these cases, the people I've talked to have made some very fundamental errors. They don't understand the source of the Bible. They don't understand the translation methodology of the Bible. Their understanding of the origin of the Bible is incorrect. But here's what's worse. Many Christians are in the same boat. We don't know where the Bible came from. We don't know why we can trust the Bible. We believe we should trust the Bible on faith. And I'm here to say that you don't need faith to trust the Bible. You just need knowledge. And that's what I'm going to show you today. We're going to show you a couple of things. One, the manuscripts of the New Testament. Where do they come from? Where are, how many are there? The accuracy of the New Testament. How the translations were made, and how do we know the New Testament authors really believe what they wrote and weren't making it all out? And at the end of this, you should be able to say, I don't have blind faith in the Bible. I have a rational faith, a logical faith, a historical faith in the Bible. Okay, so let's start with the first one, the manuscripts of the New Testament, where they are from, and how we got them. First of all, we know that the New Testament is early testimony. Okay, so the cross, 33 AD, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. How do we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD? Many historians who are not Christians tell us that. In fact, what's interesting about it, there is no historian, Christian historian, who tells us about the temple. So we know that most of the New Testament was written before the temple was destroyed. How can we say that? Well, quite easily. Let's say you were writing a biography of Rudy Giuliani. Now, the younger kids may not know who Rudy Giuliani is, but the older kids do, right? So you're writing a biography of Rudy Giuliani, and you never mention the World Trade Center. How, when can we know, how do we know when you wrote this? Obviously, if you never mentioned the Royal Trade Center, that means it must have been dated before 9-11, 2001. Exactly. Why? Because the World Trade Center was a central event in Rudy Giuliani's life. He was a mayor of New York when it all happened. So if you're not going to write, if that, if you're not going to write that into his biography, obviously it hadn't happened yet. So in the same way, the temple of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem was a central part of every Jew's life. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem gets destroyed and the temple gets destroyed. In 66 AD, there is a war starts between the Jews and the Romans. 
And none of this is mentioned in the New Testament. So therefore, we know that the New Testament was written before 70 AD and probably before 66 AD. Here's the other thing we know. We know that Paul dies in 67 AD. Why? Because Eusebius, a a Christian historian, tells us that. We also know that James dies in 62 AD. How do we know that? Because Josephus, who is a non-Christian Jewish slash Roman historian, tells us that. So... That means that the book of Acts was written before 6280. How can I say that? Because the book of Acts talks about James and it talks about Paul. And it doesn't talk about them dying. So the book of Acts was written before both of them. And and James is a leader, the first leader of the church. Before Peter, James is the first leader of the church. Okay. So James was written before 6280. Now, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, we can place around 5580. How can we do that? Because the book of Acts talks about Paul's journeys. And we can surmise from that, we can calculate from that when the book of Corinthians was written. It was written around 55 AD. Now, in the book of Corinthians, Paul mentions a creed. And he talks about this creed that was given to him by the apostles, the creed about the resurrection of Jesus on the third day he rose from the dead. Atheist professors say this creed happened within three years off the cross. Right? So even atheists agree this creed dates back to three years of the cross. Now, the Gospel of Luke was written before the Gospel of Acts. How do I know that? Because in the opening passage of the Gospel of Acts, in the, in the book of Acts, Luke says, My dear Theophilus, this is my second book. Right? So obviously the first book was already written, and that's the Gospel of Luke. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written before the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because Luke uses a lot of the facts in it as his framework. Now, just a little uh, for you to... Luke gets most of his information from Mary of the early days, because Luke has more details about Mary's, Mary's thinking and Mary's thoughts than anybody else. Mark gets most of his details from Peter. Okay, so... Now, that means Romans, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians can also be dated before 67 AD. How, why can I do that? Well, because dead people don't write things. And Paul was dead by then, right? And we, can re- we recognize that those books were written by him because of the authorship, and also the, if, you, if you analyze the style of the writing, it's definitely a Paulian document. Right, um, and so I'm guessing Paul decided to quit writing stuff after he had died. Okay, so most of the New Testament was written before 70 AD, and except for maybe the book of John, the book of John could have been written between 80 to 90 AD. And the book of Revelations may have been uh, written before 70 AD because the book of Revelation doesn't talk about the destruction of, of, of the temple. So it's hard to place that, but at least with John, we know he was probably written around 80 AD. And this we call the age of eyewitnesses. Why do we call this the age of eyewitnesses? Simply because anyone who was about 20 when Jesus rose from the dead or was crucified would still be alive when the temple was destroyed. Right? Not anyone, but most people would be. So here are two things. One... These people were around at the time, and they could collaborate. And secondly, if somebody wrote something that was foreign to them or was wrong, they would say, no, no, that's not what happened. And we don't see that. Okay. Now, let's look at the manuscripts of the New Testament. You guys remember Caesar, right? His real name was Kaiser. It's where we get the word Kaiser. It's also where we get the word czar from, right? Um, The Romans pronounce the C as a K, so it's Kaiser. But we call him Caesar. He, uh, he lived between 100 to 44 B.C. He wrote something called the Gallic Wars around 50 B.C., right? And this is his, his, his journey into the, to fight the, the Gauls, right? Now, what's interesting about that is that his original document was lost, right? We don't have the original that he wrote or his scribes wrote. So that first one was lost. That's the one right there. Now, since, since he was famous, people copied it, and then somebody made copies of that, and somebody made copies of that, and, and so they keep, you know, somebody made copies of that, copies of that, and all these earlier copies were lost. We never found those earlier copies. But we found a copy that was made around 900 AD. So it was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, made around 900 AD. And since then, we found about 10 copies. Are we with me? So we have 10 copies of Caesar, but none of the originals. And the, the, one, the earliest copy we have was a copy of a copy of a copy that was made 940, 950 years after he actually wrote it. Okay, same thing with Plato, right? Plato lived around 427 to 347 BC. We don't have any of his original writings, but we have fragments of copies that were dated around to 900 AD. And so from when he wrote it to the fragment we have, 
There was 1,200 years between the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy. Found about 20 copies. Herodotus, 980, 1,300 years, eight copies. Aristotle, 1,180 was the earliest copy we found, 1,400 years from the original, and we found about 50 copies. Okay, so then we get to the New Testament. New Testament, written between 60 to 100 A.D., Earliest copy or fragment found? If you know the answer, don't answer. If you don't know the answer, try to answer it. <laughs> What's the date for it? What do you guys think? Earliest copy. Think it's like 900 AD? 600 AD? I heard uh, somebody saying something. Almost immediately. It would be nice if it was almost immediately. Unfortunately, we don't have almost immediately, but we do have something called the Ryland Fragments. It's 115 AD. So, rather than 940 years or uh, 1,200 years or 1,400 years, our earliest copy dates within 25 years of the original. Now, in these cases, we found, since then, we found 10 copies, 20 copies, 49 copies. How many copies of the New Testament do we find? Do I get 100? Anybody? 100? Do I get 100? I see that hand. 200. I got 200. I got 200. Uh, anybody, anybody up to 1,000? Will somebody bid me 1,000? I got 1,000. I got 1,000. How about more? Anybody want to give me more? I, I got 2,000. 2,000. Okay, the actual answer is 31,000 or more. 5,366 are in Greek. The rest are translations of it. Can I want you to compare that to what we have from other documents? Now, let's understand what's happening here. And by the way, you can go online and see most of these. It used to be you had to be a scholar with special, you know, I would be a professor at some university, and you'd get special permission to go in these, you know, atmospherically sealed rooms, and you could see these copies. But now we have them all on the Internet, so you can go look at them anytime you want. Some of them in different languages, some are in Greek, right? So let's understand what's going on here. Here's John. Let's look at John, the, the Ryland segment, right? Here's John. He, 1980, he, let's say he writes the Gospel of John. Well, churches get that copy and they make copies of it. So they make three copies of it for three different churches. Each of those copies, churches make copies for other churches. And then in 11580, this one church makes a copy. And then uh, it keep, keeps copies, keep going, keep going, keep going. And somewhere along the line, all these get destroyed. And now what we're left is these other copies are left in the earliest fragments. So that's what's happening here. So now let's look at the accuracy of the New Testament. Are all these 31,000 manuscripts identical? Well, one, they're not, because some of them are in other languages, right? So let's look at the 5,000. Are all the 5,366 documents identical? Well, it turns out, if you understand, see, back then, Xerox had not started their company. So the photocopier had not been invented, and so to copy something, people would do it. They would actually sit down and they would write it out. Right? So they originally used scrolls like this. And so they would look at it and then they'd write it down and they'd look at it and write it down. And sometimes they would make mistakes, right? They would skip a line or they'd misspell a word or they'd put words backwards, right? Or they'd miss a segment. Now, we also know that then they, at some time around the line, they moved from scrolls to books, Right? And so originally they didn't use scrolls. They, when they moved to books, the monks had to get used to the new format. Luckily, the monks had good IT support. Uh, in fact, we have an actual video of a help desk call around that time. Here we go. <laughs> so once they got past all that, they still had misspelled, they had errors, right? Now, there are two kinds of errors. I call the copyist technical errors. There are two types of errors, the subject matter errors and technical errors. So, so technical errors are the easy ones to catch. For instance, every time they copy, they misspelled words, missing sections, missing or duplicated digits and numbers, or duplicated words, like they'd say a word twice. For instance, I, uh, here's an example of a recipe. This is my mother's chicken curry recipe. It's just a few items of it. Uh, my mom makes the greatest chicken curry in the world, or used to. She passed away a few years ago, but uh, she... No Nobody has ever been able to beat her chicken curry. But anyway, so if you're reading my mom's chicken curry recipe and it says, use three pounds of chicken and the chicken is misspelled. Well, you know what it means, right? There's no problem there. Um, or on the next line, it says, use off three pounds. The, off, the, the use three pounds off is flipped and you still know it's three pounds of chicken or the pepper is misspelled. So these are easy to find. They don't change the meaning, right? So I, have a, I had a class. I had a class of about 150 uh, junior high and high school kids. And I said, look, I want to try to show you how 
to recreate the text from errors. So I, I wrote out a paragraph and I gave it to the first table. And I said, I want you to make two copies of it. And on each copy, I want you to purposely put an error of this paragraph that I've written. So, and then you pass one to this table, one to this table. And, so, and to the next table, I said, I want each of you to make purposely put an error in each one, a different error in each one, and pass it to the next two people. And you pass it down till the end. And at the end of it, I said, oh, suddenly the Romans show up, and they remove all these, they destroy all these copies randomly, but we do have a copy dating from table two, and from layer two, and layer four, and layer eight, and I took like five of these pieces of paper, and I gave it to the last table. I said, guys, can you recreate the paragraph? Every time I've done this, the kids have recreated the paragraph exactly the same, except for some spelling errors like names, because they're like, well, there are three options of these names. We're not sure how it was really spelled. It's that easy to recreate it. And when we do that, when you start taking all those typographical, technical errors out, how close do you think this copy that was found, say, in Rome matches this copy that was found in Egypt matches this copy, say, that was found in Ethiopia? How close do you think we get? Are they identical? No. But how close do you think it is? It's within 1%. Now, what's interesting is if these maths between 1%, what can I tell you about the originals? How accurate are we to the original? Well, we have to be at least 1% to the original. Why? Because what is the chances that this guy in Egypt makes the same mistake that this guy in Ethiopia makes? hundred years later. What's the chance that this guy in Rome makes the same mistake that this guy in Turkey makes a thousand years later, right? Almost impossible. So we know that this is accurate. Moreover that, this also proves that nobody could have rewritten the Bible to make it say something they wanted to say. Like that argument that Constantine changed the Bible to make Jesus God. Well, how would Constantine do this? Here are by thousands of copies of the Bible of the New Testament all over the known world. The fastest mode of transportation is motorcycle. No. <laughs> Car. No. Horse. Not even that, because horses die after two days. It has to be a camel. So the fastest mode of motorcycle, if you want to go thousands of miles, okay, you've got 3,000 miles to go from Rome all the way to, say, Ethiopia, and you've got your herd of camels, and you've got your soldiers marching with the camels or riding on the camels, and they're going to this big monastery up in this tall mountain in Ethiopia, and the Christian monks in the mountain go, look, they see all the Romans coming up, and they go, what's this? We're going to have some guests. Let's get ready for them. So the guests come in. The Roman uh, captain says, give me all your Bibles, and the... the Poor monk, Ethiopian monk says, okay, okay, yeah, here you go. And they bring out the Bible and Bibles and they rip out pages and they rewrite them and put them back in, rewrite them, put them back in. And when they've got them, then they say, okay, now use these. Goodbye. And the Romans go down the hill. And the Ethiopian monks go, Ethiopian monks go, well, that was interesting. Throw out all this junk. Hey, uh, go get that other copy that we have in the cellar. And we'll use that from now on. Nobody's going to put up with this. It doesn't work. There's no way to change the Bible across all these different continents, across all these different cultures. Okay, now, but there is a subject matter difference. I said we corrected to 1%, right? So those are 1% of subject matter difference. And this would be something important. Like, for instance, instead of saying Neil's mother's chicken curry, it says Neil's uncle's chicken curry. You don't want my uncle's chicken curry. <laughs> this man does not know how to cook. Okay. Uh, he will kill you rather than make good chicken curry. Okay? So, so you, and then what if it says use three pounds of chicken? It actually ended up as use three kilograms of chicken. Well, I don't know. How many, kilogram, how many pounds in a kilogram? 2.2. So you have twice as much chicken and not enough spices. This will be the worst chicken curry you've ever tasted in your life. Or what if it says three pounds of mutton? Then you're not really eating chicken curry, are you? But worse, what if it says people who eat chicken are murderers and shall perish in the chicken coop of eternal torment? Now you're not dealing with Neil's mother's chicken curry. You're dealing with some vegetarian who wants you to suffer. <laughs> God forbid. I just uh, read of a, um, a study done in Australia that says beef was good for you. I want to find that study. So. <laughs> By the way, grass-fed beef. 
Even better for you. Okay, now, so here's the deal. With subject matter differences, less than 1%, actually. Turns out, what's interesting, it's actually less than 1%. I was exaggerating when I said 1%. Of the 20,000 lines in the New Testament, each line is about 10 words. There are about 200,000 words in the New Testament. There are only 400 words in question. So that means 1% is really an exaggeration because 400 divided by 200,000 is 0.002, or it's 0.2%. That means the New Testament manuscripts are 99.8% accurate. That means we have a guarantee of knowing the 99% accuracy of the, we have 99.8%. But what are the changes? The changes are important. What if, what if they change something? What if they say Jesus wasn't God? What if they change that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? These are important. Okay, well, I'm going to show you one of the changes uh, from Matthew 19.29, and it's going to rock your world. You're going to realize you've been lied to all these years. Let's read it. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, if you have a good Bible, and by that good Bible, I mean like a, a translation that's a direct translation, not the Yo Dude Bible. You know the Yo Dude Bible? <laughs> so Jesus was hanging out by the river and then this guy came over and he said, hey, Yo Dude, you want to follow me? And the guy said, that's cool. No, not that Bible. The one where they actually try to keep the translation, right? You will see that there's a little one or a little mark above the mother. And when you look down at the footnote, you will see that it says some MSS, mothers or wife. So some manuscripts, MSS stand for manuscripts, have mother or wife. So now when you reread this with this new enlightened attitude, you realize that this verse may say, and everyone who has left houses of mother, brothers or sisters of father or mother or wife or children. Now that changes everything, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. So these are all the minor changes that we see in the New Testament documents, and they're always documented. Now, how do they pick which goes at the bottom, which goes at the top? Well, our idea is the closer you are to the original, to the closer you are to the date of the original, then you, the more accurate you probably are. So this mother or wife was, pro- or wife was probably in a later document, maybe found like 300 years later versus something that was found 100 years later, or that was copied, 300, dated 100 that was dated 300 years versus 100 years. So what they do is they put those letters. And so there are 400 passages in the Bible, 400 words in the Bible that are like this. Ten of them, by the way, are just from Mark. Because the last part of Mark is missing. Right? And in which case, they actually keep it there and they say some manuscripts don't have this part. But the resurrection is in Mark, so that's not there. So if you start looking at this, you realize the New Testament is zero unknowns. We know 100% of the content. We're just not sure of those, where those 400 words are. Are they in the content or out the content? Right? So, um, none of the two 400-word differences cast doubt on the death and resurrection of Jesus, the divinity of Christ, the nature of God, or any of the salvation issues. And it's all right there in front of you. Folks, there is no other religion in the world that can match this sort of scrutiny or have this stable. The Book of Mormon, which was written in the 1800s, has had over 3,000 changes to it. Right? It doesn't match it. The Quran was, not re- was passed on by word of mouth for centuries before it was written down, and they had multiple different versions of it, until one of the caliphs went around, because it was all local in the Arabian Peninsula, destroyed all the documents they didn't like, and kept the ones they did. And there you still find Quranic documents that violate all the other Quran, that disagree with all the other Qurans out there. Okay, now, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought the New Testament was inerrant and infallible. You just told me there are 400 errors in it. No, 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 no. I'm telling you there are 400 errors in our version of the Bible because if I open this, I'll notice, hey, there's a typo here on page 373. That doesn't make this inerrant. No, there isn't a typo in here, but I'm just telling you that if, if you found a typo, that wouldn't mean that this was... This is, we're not talking about this being inerrant. What happened? We're talking about the original Greek that the apostles wrote themselves, those are inerrant and infallible, not the copies of the translations. We believe that what they wrote was inerrant, but we also know, know, believe past, know present, that this has 100% of the content and is 99.8% accurate. Okay. Now remember these guys? All these different translations? I can go to all these different translations and I can look at what they say and I can compare them to the Greek and I find that they say pretty much the same thing. 
So there's another verification of that. And the basic message of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of mankind for their sins, it doesn't change. Okay, well, what about other sources? Do we have any other sources? Well, it, yes, we do. It turns out that just like when Pastor Rob preaches, a, preaches, the, uh, preaches from the Bible here, he's going to quote the Bible. Now, if somebody's taking notes, they will write it down. And if, the pastor, if your pastor writes down his sermons word for word like I do, um, then he's going to write it in his notes, in his sermon notes. Well, we have sermon notes from the early church fathers. We have all these sermon notes from the church fathers. And we can actually go back and look at one. Some of these notes are date before. You remember the earliest copy of the fragment of the gospel we have is 115 AD. We have sermon notes from as early as 90 AD. From, it's called the Didache, right? By, the, by uh, the teachings of the apostles. And a pastor who knew the apostles personally writes these things. And he quotes from the Bible. And if I take all those quotes and I put it all together, I can recreate the entire New Testament except for 11 verses, just from their quotes. And guess what? They all match the Bible that we have today. Now, here's another interesting thing. Remember that whole idea of Jesus being made God by Constantine? Well, I don't even need to go to the Bible to prove that. I can go to Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger is the governor of Pontus, and he's writing a letter to Trajan. And he's telling them, because Trajan has sent him out to kill all the Christians. And here's his letter. And in the letter, he says, they, the Christians, asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God, and so on and so forth. Here we are, 111 AD. Guy killing Christians says, well, the Christians say, look, all we're doing is praising Jesus as though he is a god. Oh, wait. This was 200 years before Constantine was even born. You think Constantine brought this idea in? No, obviously not. So we can even verify it that way. Okay, now, here's, let's go to the next one. This is how the translations were or are made. And this, I always like this interesting because, you know, people say, they think that the common concept of translation is like this is a game of telephone. Right? You sit down one side of the circle, and then you say something, and by the time it comes around, it's completely twisted. Because, you know, we had the Greek original, and then there was a Greek copy, and then there was the English translation, and the New English translation, and many English translations later, and the, the K- King James guys are all made chauvinist pigs, so they turn God into a man. But this is silly. This is not how we translate the Bible. How do we translate the Bible? Here's the Greek original. We don't have that. But we have a copy, right? We've got a bunch of copies. Well, we want to start the old English translation. We look at the older copies and make a translation, right? Now, let's say I want to do a newer English translation. I don't want the these and the thousand there, right? Well, do I go back to the King James? No. I don't need to do that. I go back to the Greek copies. And I make my new translation from that. Now, yeah, there are some people who just took the King James and modernized it. But that's not a new translation, Right, the NIV, the uh, uh, NASB, those are newer translations. There's so many other translations. The Geneva Bible, there are all these other translations out there. And what's interesting is now if I want a newer translation of the Bible, what do I do? Do I go back to these guys? No, I go back to the oldest copies. And in many cases, I may have found a newer copy that was made earlier, which is more accurate. And therefore, many English translations later, they are even more accurate. Now, remember, the accuracy is only in those 400 words. It's not like I've discovered new things. You're like, oh, hey, discovered this new thing in the Bible. No, it's just, it's just those 400 words either go from down to up or up to down. Because we find an earlier copy which doesn't have it, well, we move it out, right? So that's what's happening here. We are not translating and translating and translating. We are translating it from those 5,366 Greek translations, uh, Greek copies. So this is what's happening, Right? These are the copies that are found in yellow, and we're making translations from the earliest ones, and we're looking at the later ones for reference. And if you don't like or trust any of the translations, you can always learn Greek and then make your own translation. (laughs) Nobody's stopping you, right? Or you can do what I do. I cheated. I didn't want to learn Greek. I was too lazy, right? So I use a Greek-English interlinear translation, right? So this is where you go online. You just look up interlinear. It has a Greek word on top, right? And then it has the uh, uh, English, like it has a code, uh, uh, like an index code for Strong's index code. And then it has the English at the bottom. But you have to be careful because when you translate it, 
you end up sounding like Yoda. For instance, John 3 says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's the English translation. But if you go word for word translation, you get this. Was yet human out of the Pharisees, Nicodemus? When 600 years old, you are. Look as good you will not. <laughs> so just make sure you correct for the grammar. Anyway, so well, how do we know the New Testament authors really believe what they wrote and weren't making it all up, right? Well, what if these guys were just kind of like, hey, you know, let's, I got this grace. This guy, you know, this Jesus guy, we thought he was a Messiah. He died on us. That was a total bummer. But I know how we can make money, get more sex, and get a lot of power. Let's say that he rose from the dead. And then people will follow us. Well, this sounds good until you bring in Monty Python. (laughs) There's an apostle brought before the Roman employees. And the Romans say, if you recant your silly, silly story and worship Caesar, I'll let you go and not torture your silly face and then slowly kill you. To which the apostle says, well, it's such a nice story that I made up. I may as well die for it after much shorter. I feel happy. (laughs) I want to go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone, you know. Anyway. Why is this not possible? Well, the disciples were not making it up. Why? Because all except John died terrible, painful deaths after suffering persecution. And John also died in exile after suffering persecution. Now, you may die for a lie that somebody else made up and fooled you, right? Hitler fooled the Nazis or fooled the Germans who became Nazis. Osama bin Laden fooled the the 9-11. So you may believe somebody and die for the lie. But would you die for a lie, suffer and die for a lie that you made up yourself? No, because you know it's not true. I mean, think about it. The only reason you'd come up with something is if you could get money, sex, or power. Well, money, the apostles are penniless. Sex, they were saying, be faithful to your wife. Power, gosh, they were hunted. At some point in that process, they would go, you know, this whole idea of money, sex, and power is not working for me. You know, the Romans are torturing him. Look, look, I, it's just a joke. We thought, you know, we thought we'd have some fun. You know, you understand. You guys are into power. Can I just go back to fishing now? They didn't do that. Why? Said, so, no. We saw him die. We saw him rise. And he is God. Now, here's the other reason why we know the New Testament is accurate. The New Testament has something called embarrassing testimony. Now, I want you to understand what this is, okay? If I was writing a book, where I wanted to be, my name was Peter, and I was writing a book, and I wanted to be leaders of the church. I want to be the leader of this church that I'm starting. How would that book read? I would be the greatest, bravest man ever in the history of people, right? But in, this, in, in the Bible, they're cowards. Peter denies Christ three times. I can see that. Well, let me, let me I'll, I know what. I want to be the leader, so I'm just going to put that I denied Christ three times. That would be really good for my position in the church. <laughs> Right? Uh, oh, yeah, and, and, and then we will run away when the Romans come because that will show how brave we are to carry this. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? And, and, and oh, we'll make the women the brave ones. Now, if I was writing this, let's say Pastor Rob and I were writing something like that, we'd say, okay, here's how it's going to go down. Jesus told us he was going to rise from the dead. So on that third day, Pastor Rob and I said, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. Let's go out there and show those Roman soldiers who's king or who's right. So we, we, both of us marched down there. We pushed aside the Roman soldiers, moved the gravestone, and there we said, there's Jesus, rose from the dead because his grave is empty. And then we went back and we comforted the poor trembling women. Right? That's what we do. But instead, they're like scared, hiding. The women are the brave ones. The women whose testimony doesn't even count in court, they go out there, they go, and they find the grave empty. They come back, and they tell Peter and John. And then they go, wait, no, no guards there, no guards there. Nobody's there. Oh, well, let's go check it out. <laughs> right? And then they're uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus twice, right? They make no effort to give Jesus a proper burial. And then they're rebuked. And I like this one, the best one. Uh, Peter is called Satan by Jesus. Can you imagine, you know, all the apostles are sitting around. Okay, how are we going to tell the story that we're making up here? Oh, yeah. um, Philip says, I know what. Mark, write that Jesus calls Peter Satan. (laughs) Because why should he call me Satan? Have him call you Satan. <laughs> and then Peter's supposed to be the head of the church. And they, Peter and Paul get into a fight about this. I don't know where Mary was, but never mind. Okay. The older people get that one. Okay. 
Couldn't the stories about Jesus be a myth that was invented over a period of time? Well, tests show that even two generations, that's 40 to 80 years, is too short to allow legendary tendencies to wipe out the hardcore of historical fact. In other words, you can't create a legend in 40 years. And remember, the Bible was written within 40 years. It wasn't passed on by word of mouth and then written 100 years later. The Old Testament may have been, but the New Testament certainly wasn't. Also, uh, is the New Testament mythic? Well, C.S. Lewis, who is an expert in writing mythic stories, says the New Testament is not mythic in its presentation. So I want to look at one passage to see if this looks like a myth, right? In the 15th year, this is Luke 3, right? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of, uh, priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Does it sound like he's making up a story when you consider this? One, an exact date is given, AD 29, and other people could verify it. A, all eight people that he's mentioned here are known in history to be in those positions. All were known to live at the exact time. This is not a once-upon-a-time myth story. It's designed to say this is exactly what happens. It's a historical documentation by historians. In Acts, there are 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details, historically confirmed by non-Christians. John has 59 of those, again, confirmed by non-Christians. Luke has many, many more. Uh, in fact, in Acts, Hermer says that there are 84 specific facts confirmed by historical and archaeological research. Uh, um, the Bible gets ports right, boundaries, landmarks, slang terminology gets correct. Even local languages, local deities, local industries, it gets them all right. It even gets the titles of these uh, officials correct. You can't do this 100 years later. You can't do this 200 years later. And you can't do this necessarily if you're passing on by word of mouth. This was written around the time it claimed to be written, within 20 to 40 years. And here's the other thing. 31 historical persons in the New Testament have been verified by external sources, by non-Christian sources. In fact, it got so bad that when the, uh, the, there was a time when everybody said, oh, you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust the Bible. And they said even someone like, they said for a while, they said, look, the Bible is the only place we hear about Pontius Pilate. He never really existed. The people in the Bible made him up. Until they found a stone with his name on it. And they said, okay, well, maybe we'll give you that one. And then they said, well, Caiaphas, right, there's a stone. Then they said, Caiaphas, right, in 1961. Caiaphas never existed, right? Oh, yeah, nobody knows who Caiaphas is. Until they found his ossuary, which is a bone box. And they found, they said, okay, okay, maybe Caiaphas existed. So this goes on. I mean, this is, they did that with Solomon. They did that with King David. They found evidence of King David. They had mention of King David, all this stuff. So here's what's happening. It turns out that I don't even need the New Testament to come up with this storyline. I'm going to give you some facts here, and they're all taken from Josephus, Tacitus, who told you from 10 non-Christian sources, right? And uh, government officials like Pliny, we saw that, Emperor Trajan. Okay, so here's, here's, uh, here's the, fa the facts that we're looking at. Again, none of this is from the Bible. Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius. There was a man named Jesus who lived during the time of Tiberius series. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. An eclipse and an earthquake occurred when he died. He was crucified on the eve of Passover. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die for their belief. Christianity spread fire and wide as Rome. His disciples denied the Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. None of these facts did I get from the Bible. Yet all these facts are confirmed in the New Testament. So over and over again, we see a verification that the New Testament that we have, that the Bible we have, knows what it's talking about and is accurate and comes from the source. Now, somebody came up to me and said, well, Neil, but that was 2,000 years ago. How can we be sure of what happened 2,000 years ago? Well, let's go through this mental exercise here. Einstein discovered the theory of relativity, right? If somebody who knew Einstein wrote about this 25 years after it happened, would it be true when they wrote it? Yes. Okay? Two, uh, if you read, read that fact 1,000 years later, would it still be true? Yes. If you read that fact 2,000 years later, would it still be true? Yes. The verification is not about when you read it, right? So 
Why is when you read it or how old it is relevant at all? It isn't at all relevant. The only important thing would be how long after the event did they write the historical account and if they could have known it for 10, not when you read it. Right? And that's what we're talking about. So who cares if it's 2,000 years ago? What's happened, what's important is when was it documented and would they have good reason to believe it? Now, could be, so the New Testament is written in 25. Now, could it be that they've twisted things into my, you know, I, I was talking, to, I, I work with a bunch of atheists, <laughs> engineers, right? <clears throat> and uh, I always bring, it, it, to me, this is, this is my ministry, right? I go to lunch with them and I, I, I get into these nice discussions. I recently took a bunch of them to see The Case for Christ, right? Great movie. And one of them said, I can't make the uh, movie. I said, well, do you want to read the book? So he's reading the book. So we'll see where that goes, right? And then after we get into conversation. So, so one question is, well, couldn't they have twisted things in their mind after 25 to 60 years? You know, 25 years ago, 60 years ago, yeah, there was this guy named Jesus, and we think he rose from the dead. And let's just, you know, maybe, maybe the, over time it kind of changed in their mind. Well, here's the problem. They were not arguing some minor doctrine. If somebody you loved and spent every waking hour with you for three years died, and you physically prepared his body and buried him, would you forget that? No. Now, if that person then physically came back to life and spent 40 days with you eating and drinking, would you forget that? No. And then you found you could heal people and bring the dead back to life yourself. Would you forget that? No. So it just doesn't make sense that... They, this is just something they made up. Okay, or they made greater over time. Well, the final proof that the Bible was not written. This is, the, this is new evidence that I found recently. The, oh, by the way, I should throw this in there. Remember the apostles had apostles. Right? For instance, Polycarp had an apostle. I'm sorry, John had an apostle named Polycarp. Polycarp, in his writing, says John told him multiple times that he had personally seen Jesus rise from the dead. Okay? So this is first-level witnesses. Not only John, but we have a first-level, we have a second-level witness too. Okay, so this is, a, this is new evidence. This is kind of fun, and I always want to throw this in. Um, final proof that the Bible is not written 100 years later. Okay? So now, so in America, the most popular names in 1900 was John, William, and James. Right? Boys' names. Girls' names, Mary, Helen, Anna. Now, I want you to keep track of uh, locations 2 and 7 and... Six for the Grimms, okay? So look for the highlights. See how they moved? Okay, well, the most popular in 10 years, those names had moved around, right? In fact, a lot of names moved around. I'm just joking, it was on those three. Okay, so in 10 years later, those names had moved around. If you look at 2000, you need, some of those names had disappeared completely and other names have moved in, right? See that? So every year, every 10 years, uh, over 100 years, names move all over the place, popularity in names, right? And the way they did, found this out is they look at birth records or death records. Well, what if we could go back <clears throat> and look at the names that are used in the Bible, in the New Testament, and compare that to the names that we found that were used in Judea around the turn of the century? You go, well, how would we do that? Well, the way you could do that is you could go in, and by the way, names are random, right? So you could go in and look at the records. So based on a study of 3,000 names from records and archaeological finds, tombstones, ossuaries, reports, and then historians like Josephus and Tacitus, if we can go in and start looking at all these different records, uh, we could actually come up with a percentage of how often a name, how popular a name was, and how many people that had that name. We could see if it ranked with the Bible, right? So for instance, so notice that Jewish names in Judea were different from the Jewish names in Rome or Greece or Egypt. So, for instance, in Egypt, the uh, six, the top names are Eliezer, Sabbatias, Joseph, amongst Jews, right? Um, but in Judea, the most popular name, Eliezer, was only third best. Or Joseph was the, the first best, and then uh, so you go, and then the second most uh, common was uh, Sabbatias, right? So you can see that the name popularity is different in, in Egypt and in Judea. So what if I could go through and I could say, okay, the name Jesus was, had this many popular, was this popular in Judea, and let's see how popular it was in the New Testament. The name Joseph was this popular in Judea. Let's see if there's a correlation to the popularity in the New Testament, right? Because that would tell you. Because if somebody was writing this 200 years later, there was no way they'd be able to recreate what happened in Judea, right? They'd say, they'd pick their local, 
popular names. Well, they'd say, well, maybe the names were on this, and they'd be guessing. But if you could statistically analyze this, and nobody could replicate this without a computer and without the historical evidence. So if you could replicate this, they found that the top two men's names, Simon and Josephus, was used, 15% of the people in Judea had that name. Well, it turns out that 18% of the people in the Gospel and the Acts have that name. Same with the top 10 men's name. In Judea occurs 41% of the population. In Gospel and Acts, it occurs 40% of the population. And the same thing, you'll see that there's a slight disparity on the, on the later ones, but you see these names track with the popularity of the names in the New Testament and that local. So, and for instance, if you look at this, Simon and Simeon there is the most popular name in Judea, and guess what? It's the most popular name in the New Testament. And same thing with Joseph and Joseph is the second most popular, and you see that these, these occurrences happen, right, in that uh, fashion, except for Lazarus, where there's a few less. But here's the thing that's important about this. There is no way, if you were writing this or making it up 100 years later, you couldn't get the statistical probability of names correct, especially since Jerusalem had been destroyed in 70 AD. Where would you find these documents? You need a computer, and you need archaeological evidence. Nobody could recreate this. Folks, the reason we can trust, we need not doubt the Bible today why we know it matches the author's original writings. One, copies date to within 25 years of the original. Copies spread around the world over the centuries match within 99% of each other. The point two differences are minor and not theological issues or resurrection contradictions. We have 100% of all possibilities. <clears throat> Four, 31 th- copies and manuscripts available today, 5,000 of those just in, in the original Greek. It's the most quoted document in the world today and prior to 300 AD, so we can recreate 99.99% of the Bible from quotes alone. Six, it's translated into many other languages which can be used to verify the original world. And seven, the names match statistically, which would be impossible without modern archaeology. Folks, the Bible you have in your hand is amazing, an amazing piece of work. It is 99.8% accurate to the original document. We have all the possibilities. People died to make sure you got this copy. Monks spent their entire lives copying it over and over and again to pass it on and protecting it with their lives. God wanted you to have this document. He preserved it over the years in the best possible way, in the most un fraudulent, uh, nobody could fraud, make this up, right? Nobody could create a fraud like this. And then he made sure that there was all over the country so nobody could corrupt it, all over the known world. In ancient times, people would go to mediums and, and they would pray to witches and they would ask God for a sign and they would sometimes cost millions, I mean, their equivalent of their millions of dollars, their life savings to just hear from a medium to guide the way but we have it right here. Right here. See, folks, Christianity isn't a blind faith. It's a solid faith built on a solid historical foundation. Built on a logical foundation. You have God's word. Read it. Thank you.